Hello everyone, Dr. Jim Hoven here, your host of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast where every single week I get a chance to visit with amazing people who are making a difference and today is gonna be a really cool show. I have a chance to visit with our newest attorney, Nick Maley. He's coming from Grand Junction. He's helping us make a difference for the folks out there. You're gonna love his story. We're gonna talk about where he came from, how he got to where he is, what he does, and learn more more about what he's doing for Grand Junction citizens right now. So uh, let's get going on this episode. I'm super excited. So Nick, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We have just gotten been, been getting to know each other over the last couple of months, and I'm telling you, it's been a big treat for me because um, having seen and heard about your work from Dr. Ramos, you guys worked together, and we'll get into that. You guys worked together years ago, and just hearing how he thought about you, and then for us to start looking at the possibilities and the chances to work together. And now here we are, right? It's a brand new time. We're gonna open a, an office together in Grand Junction. It's gonna be amazing. Tell me, first of all, what is it like for you as an attorney living in an up and coming town like Grand Junction? And for those of you watching or listening around the world that don't know anything about Colorado, Grand Junction's a, a smaller town in comparison to big cities like, you know, LA, Phoenix, even Denver. Um, what What is that feeling like of, and maybe it's more of a, a small to mid-sized city. What's that like? Yeah, Grand Junction is really a cool town. Um, you know, it's really, uh, you know, I would say Colorado's best kept secret. This won't air, by the way, right? <laughs> no, it's going to stay secret just to, except for all those little few people that listen to this. Yeah. No, it's a cool town. Um, metro area is about 150,000. Uh, so not too big, not too small. We have some of the big city amenities, but uh, a lot of the amenities of a smaller town. It is a huge outdoor town. If um, you're into mountain biking, hiking, skiing, river rafting, it is the town for you. You know, we have uh, resort skiing 30 minutes away, $80 lift ticket, you know, no wait. In $80 lines. lift ticket? Right. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's Colorado's wine country. We have over 30 wineries, so uh, lots of cool things going on. So I've been there about two decades almost, uh, you know, practicing law. So and you were from here, right? Kind of down in the Denver Metro and, and uh, did your training and stuff down here. So moving there, you, you fell in love? Yeah. Um, you know, I went to law school at CU Boulder. When I was there, I was living in Longmont, and I was working in Denver. So I was doing that triangle of death, I call that's, it. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of miles. That is a lot of miles. And so um, I was doing that. I was kind of getting sick of the commuting. I uh, wanted to get back to maybe a little smaller town. So after law school, I took a position in Grand Junction. Didn't know how long I'd be there. I figured maybe a year or two, then maybe head back and just kind of fell in love with it and haven't looked back since. That's so good. Let's go back in time a little bit um, before moving to Grand Junction. When you were growing up, what kind of kid were you with respect to was it about sports was it about uh you know family what what were what were your as you look back kind of your core values from when you were a young guy sure um <clears throat> i was a kind of a quiet kid uh, my dad he was in the army uh, so we moved around a lot before we ultimately settled in colorado springs uh my mother uh she's from germany they met when my father was stationed uh over there and I got to live there for about five years growing up as well. Um, and so kind of from uh, both my parents, but, you know, from my mom being, a, you know, 
an immigrant to the country, I kind of developed that immigrant work ethic, you know, first generation, you have to work hard to, you know, accomplish what you want in this life. And that's kind of the, you know, the value that's instilled in me. So that's kind of how I was in school growing up was, you know, kind of kept to myself, study hard, uh, try to get to where I need to go. Wow. And um, I'm assuming because you grew up in Germany in those years, you probably learned German and spoke that as a young guy. Yeah, it was actually my first language. I wasn't born in Germany. I was born in North Carolina, a military base there. But we moved to Germany when I was a few months old. And so I was around my mom and my babysitter and kind of the, the family. So I spoke German predominantly growing up. Uh, and then we moved back to the States. I kind of lost some of my German. We moved back when I was nine to 12, kind of picked it back up again. And that's awesome. It, isn't it something, actually, let me ask you, because I speak very limited Spanish and I put time into it every single day. Every day I put a little bit of time into it so I can get by, not like so many people that we work with here, but I can work through. But the advantages, what's it like for you to be able to speak two languages, to understand two cultures? What advantages do you see that that's given you over time? You know, it gives you a different perspective. Um, you know, we were back in Germany this past summer, and that's really the first time in 20 years I got to speak it uh, consistently. Uh, and I was a little worried that I was going to be rusty, but, uh, you know, I, I fell right back into it. Uh, you know, we were at a, we went to go see a little attraction, uh, the family and I, and I was speaking in German to some people there, and they asked me, are you from the Netherlands? <laughs> so I guess I have a little bit of a, you know, a Netherlands accent on my German somehow, but uh, it was just cool to be back in there and kind of, you know, be recognized, uh, you know, uh, you know, as a German. That's so yeah. awesome. When you were growing up, when was it that you knew that you wanted to go to law school and become an attorney, and what was the driving force behind that? Yeah, I've kind of always wanted to be an attorney as long as I could remember. Um, what was that from? Was it from uh, an influence of a parent or someone you knew or TV or? It was, it was a couple different things, you know, you know, starting uh, kind of middle school, high school, you take civics classes and you learn, I learned about, you know, the civil rights attorneys of the 1960s and I always really admired them. I thought, you know, what better way to spend your life than, you know, fighting to make sure that people are treated equally and fairly. And, you know, then there was a little bit of the, the movies. You know, I saw a few good men, Tom Cruise, that cross-examination. Did you order that code red? You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. I wanted, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be that guy. And so yeah. I kind of did things like that uh, to get me, uh, you know, ready for a legal path. I did, you know, mock trial in high school. Uh, I volunteered in the teen court program helping uh, juvenile offenders, first-time offenders kind of find their way through the criminal justice system. Uh, so I did, some, you know, some of those things that kind of started to come out of my shell and learned I had an ability for, you know, public speaking and things like that. Some of the skill sets that lawyers need. That's amazing. And so you um, leave Colorado Springs to go to CU Boulder and you did your undergraduate and your law school there? I actually did undergraduate at Harding University. That's in Searcy, Arkansas. It's a, a small Christian university. Uh, spent four years there, went straight to uh, law school, CU. Did you always have your eye on coming back home for law school after I, being in Arkansas for a bit? I was kind of open-minded to uh, where I was going to go. Um, one of the huge driving forces for me uh, to go back to CU, one, it was a great school. It was a you know, very highly ranked school. But at the time, when I went to law school, uh, starting yearly tuition was $5,000 a year in-state at CU. Um, you know, I had opportunities to go to other schools where it was forty to $50,000 a year. And I did the math and I'm going to come out of you know, law school with a lot of debt. 
you know, that's one of the things that a lot of people, you know, when they make the decision, I want to go to law school, I want to be a lawyer, they don't contemplate is you might come out of law school with $150,000, $200,000 in debt. So you need to do the things to kind of maximize uh, your chance of being successful afterward. Yes, that is so important. You know, it, um, it's funny. I When did you graduate from law school? 2006. 2006. So it's been a, a minute. You've been out for a good long time yeah. now. When I went to chiropractic school, I went there in 1987, mm-hmm. and tuition was $2,500 a wow. semester. There were 10 or trimester. There were 10 trimesters, so it's $25,000 education, right? Yeah. I was fortunate enough to come out with um, between my undergraduate and finishing up Cairo school with 54,000 in student loans. And it seemed like a bunch. Oh yeah. And now some of these Cairo students are coming out with 200 to 250, like what you're saying, 150, mm-hmm. 200,000 for attorneys. I think it, it bears just talking about here because of this particular thing just coming up in our conversation. I don't know. I'm not as convinced that the college route is for everybody at this time because there are so many ways for people to own a business, operate something, do a trade if that brings joy to their heart. And so I think we have to be careful understanding what you just said. Man, if you don't have funding and financing for this project, you got to think it through from the whole perspective. Your why, I think, becomes incredibly important as you make career path choices that are going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to get there. And, and I guess if you go in, you're pot committed at that point That's right, you know, yeah. to, to that process. But what are your thoughts on that? That's so true. You know, with the internet, um, you know, where it's gone the last 20 years, it's really democratized the ability to have a profession. You don't need to go to undergrad and get the bachelor's degree anymore to do something, especially, you know, in the computer field, uh, you know, the IT field, there's, there's so many people coming straight out of high school and getting jobs with, uh, you know, very good companies just because they, you know, coded in high school and kind of self-taught. So if you want to go that route, you can do it essentially for free. If you want to go the the long route and be a doctor or a lawyer and that type of thing, you're probably going to have to, you know, incur the cost. You have to be ready to do it though. Yeah. Price of admission, right? Right. Understanding. And that's why I'm big. You know, we have a lot of, all our kids are grown now, but through, kids of friends and family, you know, they'll ask you stuff and you know, what about this? What about that? And I tell people, don't be in a hurry. If you know what you want, go for it. Don't delay. But if you're not a hundred percent sure what it looks like for you right now, take your time and get some experience and get some life underneath you, but be disciplined about it. Cause what you also don't want in the education side, from my opinion, is to say, ooh, man, I'm going to go get a job that doesn't really mean anything, but it's going to give me freedom, give me some money, and now you get a little nicer car, and then you get caught into an apartment, and now you get the expenses overhead that you can't afford to leave anymore. And now, if your dream is to go to something else, now you're kind of bound up in that. So you still have to be thoughtful, but I think taking your time for for young folks, or even anyone wanting to change your career, it makes a lot of sense to me. That's exactly right. I always tell, you know, young people who are thinking about the law and going to law school in undergrad, don't do pre-law. You can get into law school literally having done any major you want. So if you're locking yourself into pre-law and you get to your senior year, like, man, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to go to law school. You're not trained to do anything else. But if you've taken psychology or English or elementary education or accounting or IT, you have a different option if you want to go a different route. That's great advice. That is great advice for anyone listening that is in that kind of situation is 
because it's different, right? And for us going into the healthcare route, um, you need some of those basic qualification right. type classes in order to get in. So to know that you have flexibility to study what you want, do well in it, and still have the opportunity to be a lawyer, that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. How did you, um, when, once you got into law school and you go through the process, you got recruited for this job in Colorado Springs, what was it about personal injury and taking care of injured folks um, that really kind of turned your crank or inspired you that that's where you wanted to, to spend your career? Sure. One of the things uh, I did when I was in law school is I actually had a, a clerkship with an insurance company. I was in their legal department, and doing that was not very fulfilling work, uh, you know, to say the least. I really did not like it. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a litigator, which basically means going to court and doing those types of things. I didn't have necessarily at that time a bent like I need to, you know, be on the defense side or the plaintiff side. I just knew I wanted to be in court. And so my first job coming out of law school was in a plaintiff's firm where we 100% represented the injured and just fell in love with the work and found my calling. Um, you know, there's a huge difference from, you know, looking out for a company or, you know, looking out for a corporation and, uh, you know, doing what I was doing, uh, looking out for the little guy and making sure that uh, their interests were protected. That is so good. You know, the as you call them, the little guy, the average person, the person who basically just want to get through their life and find what we all want, which is happiness, right. right? If we could find, I think, health and happiness, if those two things, if you're solid there, everything else is is pretty good. And when someone who is minding their own business ends up getting injured or getting hurt from someone else's, we'll call it negligence or whatever the term might be, sometimes they don't understand how the system works oftentimes because they're playing in a system that is grinding every single day right. and they're coming into the pool that's really hustling. There's a there's a big flow within that. And so it just makes sense to them like, oh yeah, however I got hurt, these these people are gonna make it right, you know, and it wasn't my fault, so it's gonna be the other guy and and on and on. There's so many more moving parts than they ever understand. When you get a new client, how do you set their expectations or prepare them for that whole process because it's not always as simple as it looks. Yeah. You know, I try to, to lay the whole process out for them, what it's going to look like from beginning to end. Every case is different, so it might go completely a different direction than you anticipate, you know, to start with, but I kind of want to give them a rough idea of what they're looking at. Um, the other, you know, core principle for me is, you know, clients are family. So when I'm representing you, you are going to be treated like a family member and I'm going to look out for your interests just like I would a family member. You know, talking about the dichotomy between, you know, corporate lawyers and lawyers that represent businesses and corporations and that type of thing, I always wanted to make sure that the people that I represented saw no difference between what I was doing uh, and the quality of legal representation that, you know, a lawyer for a Fortune 500 company would give their clients. They were going to receive the best type of compensation, the best type of representation, regardless of, you know, if they had a, you know, minor car accident case or, you know, a more serious, you know, wrongful death, catastrophic injury case. Yeah, and, and for them to know that, again, education is so important in these kind of situations because the other thing can also be true um, where someone is saying, you know, I didn't really get that hurt. I'm having some headaches and my car damage is $1,500 and, you know, it's a pain, 
but I don't want to put anybody out and it's not a big deal. And I, you know, I'll let you speak to this from the legal side, but from the healthcare side, from the treatment side, I had the privilege and honor to treat thousands and thousands and thousands of patients over my career and many of those auto case patients. And it was always really important for me to share with them that just because you feel what you feel right now, do not be fooled that those symptoms now, if you don't take care of them fully, and I mean fully, you are set up for more injury later or you're set up for them to rear their ugly head because you've become weaker, you've become more fragile if you don't rehab these things all the way back to pre-accident. And small accidents don't mean small injuries. You can have major issues coming from accidents and collisions that are 10 miles an hour. It can be crazy. So that's from the healthcare perspective. Talk about that a little bit from the legal perspective on these folks that I don't know if I, I was really that injured. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. People come to you, they've, you know, just been in a car accident maybe a week before, or a month before, you know, something like that. And everyone assumes that they're going to go back to normal. Life's just going to resume. And I've had a lot of clients tell me, oh, I'll be fine in a couple of weeks, things like that. And then a year later, you know, things aren't improving even with the best care. And it's just, um, you know, the type of injuries that can linger and nag uh, when you're in that type of wreck, even, a, you know, a smaller collision. And that's why you have to make sure you're looking out for your clients, you know, future medical needs. You know, on the flip side, you know, I've seen very, very serious, you know, collisions. I, I remember one collision, a guy came to me, he was hit by a giant truck. His car was crumpled up to a little box. And, uh, you know, I, I questioned how he was alive, but he really didn't have any injuries. He was just there for the property damage. I was like, wow, how is that even possible? Wow. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing how collisions affect individuals differently, but you have to represent them all to the fullest. You have to, yeah, do your best, right, to mm-hmm. tell their story. We always talk with, you know, we work with a lot of providers here at the firm, as, as you well know. And um, no matter what type of provider they are, from medical doctor, surgeon, chiropractor, massage, acupuncture, whatever they do, PT, we make a big deal to tell them, you guys write the story. You write it. We tell it. And so for folks that are going through any kind of treatment, it's, it's important that they're providers. And for the providers, we have a lot of providers that watch, watch or listen to the show. It's such a critical component that they understand the key role that they have for an insurance company to understand. Because, you know, insurance companies sometimes, probably rightfully so, and sometimes not get a bad rap for not wanting to pay out claims, wanting to hold on to the money and not take care of the people that are paying right. for a service. But... If you don't tell a great story, I mean, if you tell a crappy story, what do you expect? Right. So this relationship between story writing, storytelling, and f- proper understanding leading to fair compensation, that's a critical one, right? Is that what you're seeing from your side? Absolutely. You know, I can, I, I review so many medical records in you know, my profession, and I talk to so many clients about well, what would your doctor say and what their experience was. And you can tell right away from the medical record and what your client is saying if the person that is treating them is concerned with them and their well-being and getting them back to where they need to be or they're just kind of being treated like another number. You know, if, you know, there's, unfortunately, there's certain providers out there that uh, you can tell they don't necessarily have a lot of 
uh, interest in the well-being of their patient. They just want to get them out the door kind of thing, build what they can. And you'll see that reflect in the medical records. You know, they're rudimentary. They don't, you know, go into detail on treatment plans or anything like that. You know, when it comes time to testify, if the case has to go to trial, that treatment provider doesn't really want to help and they do everything they can to resist testifying. But on the other hand, you know, there's providers out there that will absolutely go the extra mile to make sure the record is detailed, complete, and accurate. The client understands completely what they need to do to get better, what their treatment plan looks like. You know, if the case does go to trial, they're willing to stand up for their client and, and testify. That's so important. I know, you know, being now on in the legal side of things, but coming from the provider side, it was never lost on me because I had good training on writing this story, being able to tell the story and caring enough that when it came down to me having to answer questions about that patient, it was an honor to do that. You know, it was an honor for me to be able to to do my part to make sure that everybody understood exactly what happened. But I think just like you said, there are there are some clinics that either A get so busy or B get so intimidated mm-hmm. or maybe C go like I, I I just don't know what to do here. Right, right. That, that they that they almost inadvertently do a poor job. You know what I mean? Like, and there's there's some, in my profession as, as a chiropractor, my training side, there are some guys that would write, you know, 15, 20 notes on one piece of paper mm-hmm. for 15, 20 dates of service. I'm like, you can't write a good story like right, that. Right. And I can't certainly give it to you and have you tell a good story. And so one of our missions here at the firm is working with providers and helping them know what things not what to say in a note, but rather what are the components that you need to have at the beginning of a case on a daily note at interim evaluations and at discharge, what needs to be in there so that we can tell the accurate story of what you're writing. And I think that's been a really valuable service for, for you as an attorney. Is that how it works where when you can see that stuff laid out, that it makes all the difference in the world for your case? Oh, absolutely. When the doctor, you know, puts it in the record, you know, that becomes the gospel truth for the insurance company or the decision makers on the other side. They see that doctor's recommending this. They're, you know, giving projections on how this is going to affect the client in, in the years to come. Uh, and that is the attorney gives me so much more ability to effectively present my client situation to the decision makers on the other side. And you, you can definitely tell those providers uh, you know, when you're talking to them and reviewing the records, you know, I had a trial one time in Grand Junction where it was, uh, it was a chiropractor. He had since relocated his practice to the front range, but he was a critical provider for my clients. So I had to call him to testify. So he had to go all the way to Grand Junction to testify and he did it, you know, happily. And then when he was done testifying, he decided to stick around for two days and watch the rest of the trial just, just because, you know, he cared about the client. So that was amazing. Isn't that something? Yeah. And, and that brings us to this point of what I would call generalists versus specialists, not only in what they treat, like you have hand specialists and kidney specialists and spine specialists, mm-hmm. but also in the types of injuries that anybody might treat. So you can go to, and again, speaking about what I do, chiropractors, there's some chiropractors that just say, hey, you know, I'm just gonna open the spine up and, and you know, the body's natural healing is gonna take over and do what it can. And so those might not be the best people to, not to not take care of you because they have the great intention to take care of you. But if you're in an accident, for them to write that story, if they're not guided in how to do that, their best intentions can be a fool's errand 
at the end of the day for both them because their their bill is going to be seen as not legitimate and for the client who is not going to get the compensation or even the attention that they deserve based on a lack of records, especially if that chiropractor wasn't involved in a team of approach of medical doctor and you know whatever else, specialists of PT and orthopedists or whatever. And so not all providers are created equal when it comes to treating a traumatic-based injury. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And you know every client and every injury is different. There's going to be some injuries that respond well to chiropractic care. There's going to be some injuries that respond well to injections, some injuries that only surgery can fix. And that's kind of part of the role of the treater, the medical provider, is identifying once kind of their treatment is exhausted, I need to get this uh, patient into someone who's going to try something else, and hopefully that will work. Yes. Let's switch out of the medical side and go to the legal side for a moment. So many people say when they are, um, they've been injured and it wasn't their fault, they say, I don't want to get an attorney because I don't want to sue anybody. I'm not sue happy. I'm not trying to get over on the system. I just want to get right. How do you answer people and and let them understand that a pre-litigation situation, there is no lawsuit. How do you how do you explain that to your clients as your or potential clients as they're asking, do I really want or need an attorney? Right. Yeah. That's a that's a common misperception that you see, uh, you know, among people who've been in an accident or who've been injured. The, the truth is that when you go in without an attorney, you're already at a tremendous disadvantage. The insurance companies, you know, there's, there's, there's good people that work there. There's, there's, there's good people, uh, but they're set up to hold on to their money, not pay out on claims. And so they're approaching it from the philosophy of how can we minimize your claim? How can we get you out the door for as little as we can pay? And so when you have an attorney from day one who's protecting your interests, you're already at an advantage in the process to someone who doesn't have an attorney. And there, there is this stigma that people have that, oh, I don't want to go to trial. You know, I just want to get my claim over with quickly. The best way to do that is to have an attorney, and this is how I approach every case, is from day one, I'm going to treat this case as if we are going to trial. And I'm going to need to be able to present this case to a jury and be able to win in front of a jury. And when you do that, the preparation is so good, the story that you present to the insurance company and the decision makers is so good, that more often than not, it's going to settle and it's gonna settle earlier just because they know you're ready to go to trial. And you at that point are acting as an advocate, more as a, a mouthpiece to explain and to storytell as we you know, kind of to stay on that theme, so that these folks on the other side go, oh yeah, you deserve this. And it doesn't go, I mean, I'll, again, I'll let you explain because you can do it far better than I, but it doesn't become a lawsuit until, they, until the client or the person involved in the accident and the insurance company can't come to an agreement. If they can come to an agreement, it's just, a, for lack of a better term, it's a business deal. It's a negotiation to get this person back to as close to where they could be as possible. It's only if they don't agree that it goes then to what we'll call litigation or lawsuit time. Is that the best way to say it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's kind of my job as the attorney is to tell my client's story. You know, when you're dealing with the insurance adjuster on the case, you know, I've, I've talked to insurance company, uh, adjusters, I've taken their depositions and asked them, well, how many cases are you working on? How many claim files do you have? And three to 400. So that- Per person? Per person sometimes. Three to 400. Yeah. So that, that client, uh, my client to them, it's just another number for them. It's just another case file. So my job is how do I distinguish that person to that insurance adjuster so that 
it stands out and they want to resolve that case it, it you know goes to the top of the pile so to speak and when you approach cases that way they're more often than not they have the ability to resolve without filing a lawsuit but you know at the end of the day there are just some cases where the insurance company is not going to see eye to eye with you and at that at that time you need to file suit and that basically means initiating a lawsuit against the responsible party and doing that a lot of times, uh, more often than not, it's going to apply enough pressure to the insurance company where they can dramatically you know, increase the, the value of the settlement offer to the client. And when you say, um, I'm gonna put this in a two-part question, when you say you have to get the responsible party to understand exactly what happened, a lot of people I think will say the responsible party is the person that hit me. Right. But in reality, it's the insurance that is required by law in most states to have to drive a car. You're not suing the 75-year-old that accidentally hit you. You're not suing the 16-year-old that just got their license that will ruin their driving record forever. If it comes down to a lawsuit, the lawsuit goes against the carrier of which these people have been paying premiums to take care of a situation just like that. I think that's another misconception um so first a two part to the question but will you handle that one first yeah that's exactly right so colorado is a type of state where if you're involved in an accident and someone else causes it and the other driver is insured um when you it's time to file a lawsuit you have to file a lawsuit against the driver rather than the insurance company directly some states are what you call direct file states and you can file directly against State Farm, wherever the insurance company is. But there's kind of this legal fiction in Colorado that, you know, you're suing Mrs. Jones who rear-ended you and she might be the nicest lady in the world and, you know, was just going about her business and made a mistake and, and rear-ended you. But, or slid on some yeah, ice or yeah, whatever the case may be. Really hurt you, but you have to sue her and it's her insurance company that's paying for her attorney. They'll pay any settlement that they offer her. And if you go to trial and win, it's ultimately you know the insurance company that's going to pay it and that's always the fear as a trial attorney going in front of a jury you are you have this fear that the jury is not going to want to provide the full compensation to your client what they're actually owed in the fear that oh if i you know uh, give this money or find that you know the plaintiff is entitled to this money for her injuries that it's going to take away Mrs. Jones' house. That's not the reality at all. It's it's going to take a little money out of State Farm's pocket and, and put it to where it should go. Are you allowed to explain that when it comes to the courtroom situation that, hey, please don't be confused, jury, about the fact that this lawsuit is against Mrs. Jones. The fact is Mrs. Jones, that's just a, it's a semantics technicality of our state law. Mrs. Jones is not the one who's going to be paying money here. It's her insurance carrier. Is that allowable to put out there or no? It's sad, but no, you can't explain that to the insurance. Why is that? It's uh, a law that's existed in Colorado for a long time. It's a rule of evidence. And unfortunately, the insurance company has a very powerful lobby in Colorado and they lobbied the legislator to get that rule in there. If you even say the word insurance in the middle of trial, it can cause a mistrial, which means that the judge says, game over, let's do this again. You know, six months from now, you have to, have to do another trial. Goodness. So yeah. you have to be so careful. Yeah. I'm going to go now to part A of, sure. of the, the question or part two of the question that we were talking about. And we can talk about it both in a pre-litigation sense and in a negotiation sense. And then also, uh, now that we've started going into the trial side of things into that sense, how do we, or how do you guys um, as attorneys humanize 
the person that you're representing, our client, how do you do that in such a way that now of all three or 400 cases, this person stands out? Do you build relationship with the adjusters in pre-lit and with the, you know, do you try to build a non-personal um, but communicative relationship with juries to make this, per to let them see their life and how this was affected and how this incident changed, if not their long-term future, certainly their short and midterm future. But how, how do you go about doing that? Because you're a specialist in this. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> kind of dovetailing what you're saying, there's a one side of it. You have to yourself be relatable to the decision makers, the insurance adjusters, and if the case is in litigation to the opposing counsel on the other side. Um, you know, there's a lot of attorneys and, uh, you know, plaintiff for defense. You know, they, they treat the, the legal profession like a war. You know, it's not a war, it's a profession. And so kind of what I prided myself on was always having good relationships with the insurance adjusters and the folks on the other side. And is that just by treating them well? Is that how you build a relationship, having respect and communicating with them on a on a really good level is or? absolutely you know we're not always going to see eye to eye on a case you know, they have their job and i have my job but you know if i at least treat them like a human being uh they're going to you know respect me and that's going to pay dividends for my client because i'm not going to be the guy that they hate to talk to they're going to want to talk about the case and listen to what i have to say you know when i'm talking about the client the others you know the, the other side of the coin is your relationship with your client and unless you build a relationship with your client, they're just going to be another case file to you. And so, you know, the way to do that is kind of, like I said, treat them like family from day one. You know, there's attorneys that kind of, they draw this line with your client. Uh, you're my client. I'm not going to cross this boundary. You know, for me, it's let's have lunch. You know, let's let's do something outside of this this office. Let's do something outside of this legal setting, you know. Can I come over to your house to have dinner with you? Uh, you know, I want to see how the injury is affecting you when you're, you know, sitting with your family, how you're interacting with your family. What can you not do around the house that you were doing before? Let me actually physically see that. And when you do those types of things, you develop one a relationship with your client. You actually understand what they're going through, and your biggest concern is making sure you do the best possible job for them. That is such. Um, an amazing description of how you get to know them. That was actually going to be my next question, and you went right into it on how you get to know them. I know in, in our, as, as part of our system, we have it built into communication styles because one of our core values is we communicate openly and effectively, and we put others first. Those are two of the five. And so we build it into where paralegals and attorneys, it just goes on their schedule, you know, that it's automatically filled in. So it, they don't have, those folks don't have to remind, be reminded. You don't have to be reminded, ooh, I got to remember who I have to call. It just shows up for you. Right. But going the extra mile, like you're talking about and getting to know them and how this is affecting their life, it's so important. And it does give you the ability to share that information with these people, whoever, whether it's an insurance adjuster or a team of adjusters or a jury or a judge, they all get to know them through you. And so that investment of time that you put in, I mean, that's remarkable. And I think it's amazing. If someone is going through this process, they, they're, they've been injured. If they're with you or with us, they're going to get this kind of treatment. But if they're not, and they're either trying to do this on their own, <clears throat> which is, by the way, a bad idea, um, it, you know, in almost every case. Right. 
or if they're with someone who takes this approach. And I'm sure that you know of attorneys just like I do that take this approach. Hey, Mrs. Jones, you've been in an accident. Tell you what, um, we want you to go treat, go do your thing. When you're all done with treatment, then let us know. We'll gather all the bills and records and then we'll get to work on your case. I don't understand that approach. I don't know how you get to know them. I don't know how you get to know the case. I don't know how you prepare the insurance companies for the injuries that are coming. I don't know it, but it happens all the time. And so if someone is in that kind of relationship or trying to do this on their own, what's their best way to, to get their story out there? Right. Yeah, I see that a lot too. So many attorneys, they, they're in a rush to sign up the client, they sign them up, and then maybe six months or a year, we'll, we'll get serious on that particular case. You know, my kind of philosophy as an attorney is from day one, you're going to have a standing appointment with me. I'm going to check in with you. I try to do it every, at least every month where you're going to come into the office or at the very least on the phone, and we're going to talk about how you're doing. What are your symptoms? Are they improving? Are they kind of plateauing? Uh, what type of things do you need to do? What can I do for you to get you on the path to recovery? Can I, you know, you know, make a suggestion or anything like that type of provider you need to see or, you know, something of that nature. So you're always going to have a standing appointment with me. And then, you know, when, when that appointment's over, we're going to set another one. We're going to figure out how you're doing on month two, month three, month four. And that sets me up in the best possible way to be able to determine when the time is to settle the case. Some cases, you know, it, it might only take a few weeks to settle. It might take a month. That client, they're done treating, they feel great. It's time to settle the case. But some clients might take six months, a year, two years, and you're not going to know that unless you're meeting with, you know, folks regularly. I agree with that a thousand percent. And in that sense of communication, which is what those meetings are, as we've been talking, it's kind of been formulating in my head that there's a triad of communication. We've talked about two of those three components so far. One is with the client. We've made a big deal about that. Mm -hmm. The other is with the person on, we'll call it the other side, but sometimes that can be the person's own insurance company. Right. We, we can go into that as well, but right. um, it's, it's the people that are responsible for paying for these injuries. But the third is providers. And it's so important for people to understand that when a law firm and the lawyers have great relationships with the providers, it just makes the whole world so much better. And this is not to say that lawyers guide medical treatment in any way, shape, or form. Because medical doctors, chiros, PTs, they're all specialists at what they do, especially right. if they're trained in how to document and treat trauma. That said, I've seen it happen. When I was a provider, I would have attorneys that I didn't know and I didn't work with, and I'm treating this person medically, clinically, what I need, and then or what they need and then all of a sudden the the attorney calls me up seven or eight months down the line because they did what you said you know oh just call us later when you're done treating i wasn't done treating and all of a sudden something comes in on the case where ooh, now the case is bad because because in the meantime now the patient has thousands of dollars of care with me and whoever else they're seeing and there is no case and it puts a relationship strain on the provider and the patient that that's one side of it the other side is if a patient's getting treated and the provider and the attorney have a great relationship and me as a provider say, hey, Nick, I want to let you know Mrs. Jones is almost there. Or in, in a lot of cases, I see that she needs an MRI or a specialist. And so I'm giving you a heads up that you know this is more serious than we thought. That then allows you as an attorney to go tell the insurance carrier, as it were, hey, Mrs. Jones, just because she only had $2,000 of damage, she's got big problems 
here's this, here's this. We're not waiting 10 months to start this process. Everyone's in communication. So that provider relationship for me seems pivotal. Is, is that what you've seen too? Oh yeah, as, as a trial lawyer, it's critical for me to have a good relationship with the providers. Uh, you know, not all providers, you know, love to get a phone call from an attorney or a letter from an attorney. Uh, you know, you know, their focus is on the patients and, you know, making sure they're treated and they have plenty to do just doing that. So, I mean, one, my, my focus is I'm going to make my relationship with the provider as easy as possible. I'm going to know what I'm talking about when I'm talking to the provider about the patient. I'm not going to know their file inside and out so that the provider's not needing to educate me. You know, I'm able to talk one-on-one -on -one with the provider about the medicine, what's going on with the client. You know, um, when it comes time to actually meet with a provider uh, in terms of preparing for trial or testimony, things like that, one of the things that I always do when I'm scheduling that, you know, you know, Dr. Smith, I'd like to you know, meet with you about Mrs. Jones to uh, get your testimony ready for trial. Oh, sure. When do you want to do it? You know, 10 minute conversation on the phone. No, I want to come down to your office. I want to meet with you, you know, sit down for an hour. We can actually sit down and talk about the file. You know, what's going on? You know, I'll do it in your setting. Make it make it as easy as I can for you. Yeah. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. And that as a provider, I'll tell you that that's appreciated. You know, you're watching out for the provider's time, making them feel comfortable. It's so important that we understand that. And here's the other thing about having great relationships with providers. You start to know the ones that get it. Sure. That really get it and understand how to treat these and how to document them. And that gives a unique, a really unique advantage in people, in clients getting better. So along the front range here in Denver, obviously with Dr. Ramos having his long history here of being a provider and working with car crashes well before he was ever an attorney, he knows all the specialists, all the stuff from my experience here as a Cairo, know these folks from your long-term, you know, tenure in Grand Junction, right. knowing these people, that gives a big, big advantage, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Having the right medical team on your side, it's going to, one, get you better quicker because they're doing the right things to treat you and get you on the road to recovery. And two, just having a willingness to stand up for your client be willing to, uh, you know, tell their story in the medical record, and if necessary, come to trial. You know, testify on their behalf in a in a credible way. Yes, and it's interesting because so many people, um, and I would probably count myself as one of them to a certain extent. They don't know who to go to in an instance of something happening. Right? I don't know a nephrologist, so if I had a kidney problem. I wouldn't know who to go to. Right. I would have to consult my insurance book. And there I would find one of however many names. When someone's been in a in an accident of some sort of personal injury, even if it's not a car crash, if it's a slip and fall or a dog bite or a work comp injury or whatever it might be, well, work comp's different. I guess it's got his own system. Right. But if you're talking about this personal injury world, when someone gets hurt, they might think, man, I should just go to my regular doctor, right? My PCP or my regular chiropractor. And in many times that's great. Right. That can be great because that doctor has a history of that person before the accident and after. But unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of providers right now that don't wanna deal with you if you've been in a car crash, especially right. car crash, because the insurance changes, there's more moving parts like we talked about earlier, and it becomes very labor intensive for them to, to do those types of cases and so they will need help they'll say 
who should I send this paper? And oftentimes that's where we come into play where if the person doesn't know who to go to and those providers don't know who to go to, at least we can give names. We can give them three, four, five names of the type of provider they need that do understand the situation. I think that's a huge advantage for us. Right. Yeah. There's some cases where, you know, visit with a chiropractor or a family, you know, practice doctor is, is, is enough. That's enough to get them on the road to recovery and get them back to hundred percent. Others, you know, they need to see specialists, they need to see all kinds of doctors. And really your job as the trial attorney is to, to know the medicine to such a level that, well, it looks like you probably need an MRI or you need a, you know, can, consider seeing a pain specialist or receiving an injection or something like that. So it, it kind of opens up the treatment spectrum for your client. And that's how kind of to bring up a little history, that's kind of how you and Dr. Ramos originally met because you guys worked together way, way back before he was an attorney. And he was a very, very well thought of medical doctor here doing trauma injuries because he was on the He's an ER board certified trauma doc. He's working in the ER. He's doing all these things. That's how you guys met, right? That's exactly right. Um, <clears throat> I would hire him as an expert on my case. So he wouldn't be the treating medical doctor, but what he would do is review all of my clients' medical records, uh, you know, past medical history, accident-related medical history. He would do a thorough examination and meet with them and then prepare this comprehensive report about what was going on with the client were their injuries related to the accident? Uh, was their treatment you know, medically necessary? Uh, what type of future medical treatment might they need? Do they have any permanent impairment? Uh, all those types of things. And you just prepare these amazing reports you know, that I could submit then to the insurance company and say, you know, here's what uh, Dr. Joseph Ramos, a very well-respected doctor, you know, has to say about the client's injuries. And they would go so far you know, in helping me be able to resolve the case you know, on behalf of the client. And there were other times too where, you know, tough cases where uh, I'd actually have Dr. Ramos come in and, you know, testify on behalf of the client, which was amazing. And what an advantage now for our clients to have that as their resource for attorney, right? They see it on the commercials. I'm sure people that are local, you know, that he's a medical doctor and an attorney, but none of those messages tell the depth of knowledge that he has oh, yeah. and the experience that he has and the knowledge in this particular area is insane. And, and so, you know, we've heard it, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times about what an advantage it is to have that guy also be on my side, on the legal side. Now he doesn't treat patients anymore, but to use that same knowledge to help them get the best outcomes, I mean, it's a game changer. Oh yeah. There was a trial I had once with uh, Dr. Ramos. And uh, I think the only question I asked was, can you please state your name for the record? And he just said, yes, uh, Dr. Joseph Ramos, and she started talking. And I think an hour and a half later, I said, no further questions. And, then, <laughs> and, and you know, the whole time the jury was just like, wow. And, you know, even the defense attorney, you know, it wasn't objecting. It was just incredible to, uh, you know, to see that and kind of the connection he had with the jury and even the way that, you know, the defense attorney appreciated, you know, what he was saying. When you see that, it's got to be like art. Yeah. It's got to be like art. And that takes me into... A question about the the courtroom. What's it like for people that might be watching or listening that have never been in a courtroom? Nick, what does it feel like? Is it anything like what you see on TV with Law and Order or any of these things? Or what's the atmosphere? Does it get controversial in there? Does do the people that the witnesses for both sides? Does it get cantankerous? Or maybe it's a whole variety of experiences. Yeah. It can be intimidating uh, because it involves public speaking, you know, for the lawyers, the judges, uh, the witnesses, even the jurors, you know, when they're being selected, they have to answer questions about themselves. 
And I think they say that the biggest fear in life is public speaking, even more so than death, you know? Mm-hmm. So it can be intimidating in that regard, uh, you know, for people. So you have that aspect of it. And, you know, there are certainly those Perry Mason moments uh, where, you know, things are very exciting, but, you know, sometimes it can be, you know, kind of dull, you know, just kind of, you know, listening to the testimony and moving things along, admitting evidence. So, you know, the trials that go the best are where you can make it not just a trial, a legal proceeding. It's where the jury gets to listen to a two, three, four, five day long story about your client. You know, it's like they're they're watching a movie or, you know, listening to a podcast. They're 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 engaged in that manner. That's that's the the way to win it. So storytelling is key. Absolutely. Wow. So this has been a fantastic episode. Thank fantastic. You. Like I've just learned so much even from what we've talked about, right? And, Absolutely. and I'm sure the people watching have too. I want to end with one question for sure. you. And it's a question that I ask all our guests, and it is this. Has there been one piece of advice that you've either been given or learned along the way that has been foundational into all that you've achieved? Because you're such a great trial attorney. I mean, you're such a and a great human being um, all the way along the way. Is there some piece of advice that you could share with me and with our audience that we can now incorporate to try to make ourselves better as well? You know, my foundational principle, and I've seen this as a trial lawyer uh, over and over, is that life is fragile and it can be incredibly brief, unfortunately, sometimes. Uh, you know, I've seen that in you know cases that I've had to represent where someone's life has either been changed completely, they've lost a limb, they've been paralyzed, or I'm representing the family members of someone that's been killed. Um, life is incredibly fragile and, and incredibly brief. Uh, a lot of times you never know when it's your time. So the best thing that you can do in life, in my opinion, is to love the people around you as best you can. Take care of your loved ones and try to be a positive in the life of you know the people around you. That is brilliant. That's wisdom and gold for us, Nick. Thank you. You've been such a great guest, and I couldn't be more excited to work with you. You've been hanging out with me all week That's and right. with our team here, and I was up in Grand Junction with Dr. Ramos and our CEO. We were visiting with you weeks ago. I'm so excited. I couldn't be more honored for us to be on this journey together, and brother, we're going to do some really, really great things for a lot of people in, in uh, your neck of the woods there. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, you have a great rest of your day, and we will be talking soon. Thank you. All right. Now, everyone, I know you learned something on this episode. Please, when you get this, if there's something that resonated with you or you know someone that is in need of this service, please, please, please share this video, uh, share the podcast, however you're consuming this, and have them listen to it, if nothing else, to be educated. Um, For us, making a difference is key. And while it's always our job to make a difference, it goes to you too. Go out there, do something, and make a difference today. And by the way, if you want to get a hold of Nick at all for any reason, you can um, reach him directly at nmaile, M-A-Y-L-E, at ramoslaw.com. And uh, you can also call us here in Denver. We will be handling all of his inbound calls for now. Uh, 303-733-6353 and you can reach him directly as we're getting uh, everything set up for him. So give us a call, uh, let us know and we will be happy to help you. In the meantime, get out there and make a difference.